we welcome back Pastor Laren Zoerhoff that was with us last week. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in our songs and our worship of praise to God this morning. It's good to be with you to share God's word with you again today. And um, the theme for the service today is going to be taken from Proverbs 14, verse 31. Pastor Andy was telling me that he's preaching a series of messages on the first nine chapters in the book of Proverbs. And uh, the proverb that I want to... uh, call to your attention this morning and have us uh, focus on as our theme comes from Proverbs 14. I didn't want to invade his territory. Uh, Verse 31. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. We have a beautiful illustration of that proverb in the New Testament. The book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Let's read that together as we reflect upon this wonderful example of kindness and compassion to a very needy man. Acts 3, beginning at verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Dear friends in Christ Jesus, Peter and John were on their way to the temple in Jerusalem. It was about three o'clock in the afternoon, the time when people gathered in the temple for a time of prayer. There were three sacrifices, and after those sacrifices were made, people would come together to praise God and to offer their intercessions uh, and to fellowship with one another around God's throne. People came like religious people come to a worship service in which their hearts and their minds want to be captivated by God. 
The temple was something of a wonder in the ancient world of that day. It had taken two generations to build and construct this wonderful temple. It took a king's fortune to build it, funded by the now deceased King Herod. With its high ground on Mount Zion, white marble, silver, and gold, it occupied a prominent place so that no one could miss this beautiful building that had been constructed to the praise and glory of God. Around the temple, there was an outer perimeter with a, a colonnade named after one of the earlier kings in, Sol in, in Israel, Solomon's Colonnade. This was a popular gathering place, and people would often come there to socialize with one another. It was open to Jews as well as, and Gentiles as well as Jews, and Jesus had gone there often to teach, usually to teach, but sometimes he went there for a different purpose because the merchants had multiplied to the point where they were even crowding out those who had come for the purpose of worship. The colonnades were loud and busy with conversations and teaching and animals and, and people and debating, and of course there were the beggars. The temple was a place where beggars would often go. This was a place where they could get attention from people who were religious, and religious people are the kind of people you would expect to be kind and compassionate to those who were in need. All good people of every religion are told to be kind and generous to the poor. And Jews were especially taught that it was their responsibility to share alms with those who were needy. On that particular day, there was a man in that sea of beggars who had been born as a paraplegic. He had never walked a single step in his life. Not only did he have to beg for a living, but he had to have people carry him to a place where he could carry out that begging. And because he had done this all his life, he knew where the most lucrative spots would be. And, and one of those spots was near the gate beautiful. That's where he often would go when he was carried by his friends. The Gate Beautiful was a wonderful place, an arch of 75 feet high, and the doors were covered with expensive Corinthian brass. It's hard to know what to say attracted this man to the attention of Peter and John. Why did they notice him when there were so many other beggars around as well. Maybe it was the sound of his voice which was loud and piercing or, or maybe it was a tone that, that caught their attention and, and they focused their attention on him. He asked for money. That's what he was there for. And he knew the only way to get money was to ask for it repeatedly. You have to shout out in a loud voice to so many potential donors in order to get the one or two who are likely to give you a coin or two for the day. A hundred shouts equals two shekels, and a thousand shouts equals 20 shekels. This was a demanding job, 
for this man who was lying there along the side of the path. Someone has called this beggar the man who got more than he asked for if there ever was one. Peter and John looked straight at him. Now, the beggar wasn't a person who needed to make eye contact with a lot of people. After all, if you're going to try to hit up a thousand people in a day, you can't spend much time looking at each individual that passes by. You just have to shout in the hopes that they will notice you and pay attention. And this beggar probably knew that rich men didn't really care to make eye contact with a lot of beggars and handicapped people along the side of that path. He knew what he was expected to do, and that was to look up in humility and not with boldness and confidence. But Peter looked at him, and Peter said to him, Look at us. Beggars want to do what donors ask. So this beggar fixed his eyes upon Peter and John hoping that he could cash on in on a bigger-than-usual contribution. But Peter held out empty hands and gave a non-cash offer. Silver and gold I do not have, he said, but I do have something that I can give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And Peter wasn't joking. He really didn't have any cash because Peter had joined the group of people who had decided to share their goods and possessions. They lived together in community, and so they didn't have individual goods and possessions that they could offer. And he wasn't kidding about a miracle as far as this paraplegic man was concerned. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet, and he began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. This certainly was a man who got more than he asked for if there ever was one. He had asked for a small coin. Instead, he was made perfectly whole. He springs up. He walks. He leaps. And he gives thanks. God. Other facts foul in the narrative. The gathering of a curious crowd. The tendency of some to credit the two apostles with a man's healing. Peter's emphatic denial. His insistence that this miracle had been effected in the name and by the power of Jesus Christ himself. And finally, his turning this whole affair into an opportunity for rebuking those who blindly denying that Jesus was the Messiah, had put him to death on a cross. Judging by the extent and the detail with which this miracle is recorded for us in the scriptures, this was an extraordinary occasion, both in itself and in the numerous lessons that this miracle implies. This was the first miracle that was performed by the disciples after the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them at Pentecost. And observe that we have here two essential parts of all genuine Christian living. I have and I give. Having and sharing. 
The one speaks of possession, the other speaks of communication. I have, there is what you possess. I give, that is what you are willing to share. And those two are inseparable. I cannot give you silver or gold, Peter said, because I do not have that. But I have Christ, and I am ready and willing and eager to share him with you. It is true, of course, that when one has silver or gold in Christ too, the responsibility we have as Christians is to use our resources in such a way, to share our treasures in such a way that the work of Christ and his church may grow and flourish and be advanced. We are to use whatever God has given to us in order that we may be a blessing in the hearts and lives of the people around us. The point is that all receivers of God's grace and the goods of God's world are to be transmitters of those gifts to others. Our lives are to be rivers and not reservoirs, channels and not cisterns. What were the particulars that Peter and John had and consequently gave? Easily discernible is the fact that they had Christ's compassion as their motive. They were willing to minister to human needs. They were motivated by the same spirit that led the master to pause when he heard the cry of blind Bartimaeus or saw the sorrow of the woman of Nain or looked upon the affliction of the man who was carried by his four friends or read the secrets in the heart of the woman of Samaria. Of him we are told that when he saw the shepherdless crowds, the needy, confused, hard-driven multitudes who were overborne with the misery of life and, and overcome with the tyranny that they often had to deal with, they were moved with compassion. Jesus was moved with compassion. Peter and John were moved with compassion. It's a beautiful and powerful expression. It reveals a kind of sympathy that does not exhaust itself in sentiment, but issues into concrete action. Here is a man that needed their help. Can it be that altogether too often we look upon sinning humanity with unconcern, with a sort of complacent detachment? We often only see what we really want to see. Sometimes we walk right past people without really paying much attention to what is going on. It's amazing how blind we can be to what is unpleasant and disquieting. Shame and need stare us in the face every day, and we resolutely refuse to look at it. We only really see what we want to see. I suppose there were hundreds of people who entered the temple that day, who never even saw that crippled beggar laying there at all. He was too familiar an object to attract attention. They had seen him laying there time after time after time. Why bother paying attention to him? There may even been a few for whom his presence was a positive offense. They saw him in the small cracked mirror of their mind as a mere blot upon the landscape, and they were the blindest of all. But Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And Peter said, look at us. And that's the Christian attitude toward the lame man. It recognizes his existence. It acknowledges his need to be heard and helped. 
Peter and John were going into the temple because they were devout men and they loved the house of God. But they had been with Jesus of late and they had learned something of his mind and of his character and of his compassion. His ear was never deaf to a cry for help, no matter how preoccupied he may have been. So Peter and John stopped to look and look again. How other, however others may have taken it, this was something that they wanted to address. This is something that they wanted to deal with in a positive way. The friends of the lame man, whether they realized it or not, were laying him at the proper place, at the gate and door to the church. Because that is where people can have their needs met and supplied. And the people who go to church cannot disclaim responsibility. What do we go to church for? To worship God, yes. To worship a God who said, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. What good are our prayers to God here if we have hardened our hearts against the prayers of the lame person who is just outside the door? If our minds are lighted and our hearts are warmed by the love of Christ, then we will seek, then we will seek to share that love in ever-increasing manner with even the worst of people. The one thing Christ's compassion men and women cannot do is be unmoved in the presence of humanity's aching needs and manifold ills. And that brings us back to that verse in Proverbs 14, verse 31. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Notice, secondly, that Peter and John had Christ's name as their authority. And having it, they used it. They shared it. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. That was Peter's commanding address to this lame man. There might be what is called extraordinary and ordinary uses of the name of Jesus. By ordinary means, I do not mean unimportant, but rather those which are ready and available for all of Christ's believers. But there are some gifts, however, bestowed upon certain believers and at certain times that involve an extraordinary employment of Christ's gifts. The gift of miracles, for example, was one of the signs of original apostleship. Jesus had gifted his apostles through the Holy Spirit with the ability to perform miracles at the beginning of the church so that the church could grow and flourish and become all that he designed it to be. That was a gift that Peter and John had that you and I do not have. It was a straight-out demonstration of the apostolic gift of working miracles. But there are also uses of the name that are available to all of Christ's believers. Take, for example, these words of the Master, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Here is the secret to success in prayer. For the name is the symbol of the Spirit, the character, and the office of Christ. And the right and proper use of his name implies our being in accord with his Spirit, in harmony with his character, and in reliance on his office. 
Notice thirdly that Peter and John had Christ's spirit as their power. These were men on whom the Holy Spirit had come in all of its fullness and power. We read about that in the second chapter of Acts. And who can make the comparison between what these men were before Pentecost and after and still fail to see that it is one thing to have our names written in heaven in the Lamb's book of life and quite another thing to allow the Spirit of God to complete that redemptive work in our lives. It is this filling of the Spirit of God that drives out worldliness and gives a consistent enthronement to the spiritualities of the holy life. The Spirit displaces fear with strength, weakness with courage, and failure with success. Compassion, authority, and power. Those were the three things that Peter and John had, and it was all centered in Jesus Christ. Now, you and I can't say, as Peter said to that beggar, silver and gold have I none. At least I think that's true for the majority of us here. Many of us have been richly blessed by the Lord. God has showered his blessings upon us in abundance. Many of us have financial resources that are plentiful and bountiful. And we are called to use the money that God has given to us to support the work and mission of the church so that the work of the church may grow and prosper and flourish. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8. Whoever shows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Each of you should give what he has determined in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. But our giving involves more than financial gifts. Peter said to the beggar, Silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have, I give to you. My possessions become my debt. I do not own them, I owe them. And I must share them. And I wonder sometimes why we as Christians find it so hard to share with others what God has given to us. Could it be that we find it so hard to give because we have so little to give? The question is inescapable. What do we have? What do we possess of Christ and his grace and his power? But remember, you should have something to give. Otherwise, why are you a Christian? Surely you have some witness to bear of God's mercy and grace and goodness to you. You may not be able to say much or to say it eloquently. But surely you can give some reason, some testimony for the hope that is in you. Perhaps you envy Peter for the boldness and certainty of his faith. There was a time, however, when Peter was neither bold nor certain. You remember that time on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion when he denied his Lord three times because he did not dare to admit that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. But when he was restored and became a leader in the early Christian church, he was willing and ready to stand up and be counted for Christ. 
There is no one so poor or weak or unworthy that cannot take heart from the story of Peter. No life is too obscure or insignificant for God to use. In fact, its very obscurity or insignificance may be its highest qualification in God's sight. For God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things that are mighty. But we might ask the question, could it be that we have so little to give because we ask God for so little? Perhaps we have not because we ask not. Perhaps you and I, like this lame man at the gate called Beautiful, have grown accustomed to asking for just a little handout. We, perhaps we don't expect very much to happen to us, to change us, to transform us. We are asking for a little handout from God, a little help, a little comfort, a little encouragement, just enough to get us by another day with some degree of comfort and security. And perhaps God is willing to do something for us which is far more incredible, far more miraculous. Perhaps he may, wants to make us into a new kind of man or woman, boy or girl. Perhaps he wants to do something incredible, something much more miraculous than we have ever begun to envision. He wants to give us greater horizons, deeper compassion, wider sensitivity, a stronger sense of responsibility. One of the best well-known ascriptions of glory to God is found in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's the kind of God with whom we have to deal. A God who can do miraculous things. A God who can breathe life into a valley of dry bones. A God who can infuse strength into crippled legs. A God who can do great miracles. And here we are asking for so little. Perhaps the reason we don't ask God for the great things is because we are afraid it's going to demand a radical change in our way of living. And we are afraid of that above everything else. Think of the drastic changes in his life that this crippled beggar had to make. All of his life he had been on the receiving end of the concern and sympathy of others. Now all of a sudden he had to be concerned and take responsibility for others because he was healthy. Quite a decision for him to make. He had to find a job. He had to be a person that other people could depend on and lean upon. Someone has said that the significance of what happened to the beggar in this story can be found in the difference between the two verbs. In the beginning of the story, he was on his way to the temple to get alms. At the end of the story, he is on his way to the temple to give 
thanks. That is a dramatic and radical change to make. Perhaps we had better not pray too seriously unless we're ready to make a change like that. There was a student in Cambridge in the early years of the 19th century who was a brilliant and promising young scholar in languages. His name was Henry Martin. I do not know what his prayers were about, but he did pray regularly, for he was a convinced and practicing Christian. I suspect that he prayed for the things that most young people pray for, that he might achieve success in his chosen profession, that he might find the right girl to marry, that he might keep his health and have a happy family life. Nothing wrong with prayers like these, of course, but I'm sure he was as surprised as anyone else when during that time of prayer a wild new idea came into his mind and took possession of his heart that he simply could not shake away. He was convinced that Christ wanted him to go to the country of India and preach the gospel to the native peoples there. It was an utterly impossible idea. The East India Company wouldn't allow missionaries in those early days, and he had to overcome tremendous opposition. And when he finally got there, he started the back-breaking task of, of learning some of the more important Indian dialects and, and translating the Bible into the one that he thought was most important. It was a difficult assignment. And the circumstances in which he was living were very trying and, and hard. And his health broke down in the climate of India. And eventually he died at the young age of 31 before his translation of the scriptures had been completed. And yet from all we know of Henry Martin through his letters, he found a depth of meaning in life that brought him great joy and great blessing. For our unworthiness, we dare not. And for our blindness, we cannot ask for his great gifts. We can learn a lesson from this man who got more than he asked for. And that is that God must be trusted to do for us what we are incapable of doing for ourselves. We do not know enough about life to ask for all the things that would develop the unused muscles of our souls and set us walking around like healthy men and women. Paul once wrote that the Christian response to everything that happened was giving thanks in all circumstances. The Christian is one who sees what great things God can do for a person who accepts what life holds out to him in trust and in confidence and in faith. If ever there was someone who received an unexpected answer to the prayer of his life, it was Jesus of Nazareth. It seemed a dark and a bitter and a cruel answer, that agonizing and bloody cross set up in the blazing sun. But it has become the hope of the world. It has measured faith and devotion and compassion and love for 2,000 years. It was disturbing. But at the same time, it was glorious and victorious and strengthening. And on the night before he was to go through that bitter experience, our Lord gathered his disciples together 
in the shadow of that event and tried to show them the meaning of what was about to happen. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. God was at work in shaping and equipping Jesus for that awesome task of laying his life down on Calvary's cross to atone for our sins. That was celebrated by Jesus with his disciples on the night before he was to be crucified. And for us who live in an uncertain and in some ways extraordinarily dangerous time, we can learn a lesson from this man who got more than he asked for. If God is about to startle and shake and astonish us, as Peter and John startled and surprised that crippled beggar, let us believe that he does it to heal us and to restore us to a fullness of life that we had forgotten was even possible. And the prayer that God will always answer is that he will give us his love and his spirit so that we can walk the pathways of life as he walked them in faith and in love and in power. It was sometime during the middle of the 12th century that St. Francis of Assisi paid a visit to Pope Innocent II in Rome. Pope Innocent showed St. Francis the glories of that papal city and the papal dwelling place. And then in a dramatic climax, the Pope threw open a door to a large vault filled with gold and silver from the floor to the ceiling. And the Pope proudly exclaimed to St. Francis, We can't say any more with Peter. Silver and gold I do not have. St. Francis was silent for a moment, but only a moment. And then he said quietly, But neither can we say, Rise. Take up your bed and walk. You and I are not called upon to work miracles like Peter and John. But we are called to be miracles. Miracles of God's redeeming grace. Men and women whom the world cannot explain. Who are a mystery to it because they are compelled to recognize us as the product of forces other and higher than our own. Can that in any measure be said of you and me? Are we in any sense marked men and women, boys and girls? Do others, when they look at us, take knowledge of the fact of who we are. People who have been with Jesus and who have experienced his forgiveness and his compassion and his love.
Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, fill us with your love and with your spirit so that we, like Peter and John, can walk the pathways of life as you walk them, in faith and in love and in power. Amen.